Well, that's one of those songs that ought to be an instant classic, huh? It covers everything, and I like that. I praise the Lord for that. And uh, think about with all the things that are going on in the world today, as well as all the things that are not going on that we would like to see. And um, I was listening to uh, John MacArthur on Grace to You the other day. He's talking about the second coming. And he said, someone asked him, is the world going to get any better? Is the world going to get any better? You know what? He said, yes. Yes. It gets better when Jesus returns. Because he's coming to take over and to set everything right. And so as Christians, we ought not get caught up in the doom and the gloom and all of those kind of things we ought to know that everything's going along according to plan and prophecy and that it is going to get better when the Lord comes and what a what a glorious day that's going to be he's going to return and we're going to be with him and that is uh, one of those things that uh, I don't think we think enough about as we look at the world in which we live but it's hard sometimes because the title of the message tonight is Ambushed. And the way that Asaph is feeling, as we uh, really saw last week, the enemy starting that their heads are popping up. They're not even afraid to hide, uh, to show themselves. They're, normally they would hide and be camouflaged, but they're bold. They're very bold now, as if they are taunting Israel, especially Jerusalem, saying, what are you going to do about it? And don't you feel sometimes that that's the way life is right now? There are things that we look at we're appalled by. There are things that we never thought we would see or not to this degree or maybe not this soon. And we look at all of it and it's like they have absolutely no fear of God. They don't have any respect for God's people or anything like that. And it's like it's an ambush just coming from all directions. And it would be one thing if it were just coming from uh, one way, you could run. You could go, if it's coming from the south, you could head north or something like that. But uh, you can't when you feel like you're surrounded by it. And one of the things that has always intrigued me, have you noticed how the enemy can always seem to stay on message, on task, and unified, even though they may be very, very different? I thought about how liberals in our own nation okay think think about this conservatives have always had a hard time staying together we fracture it's a nation uh, the nature of the movement we just tend to do that and yet liberals can stay together you can have one of the richest men in the world bill gates for example and he can be in league with somebody who is poor and living in the inner city. What do they have in common? Virtually nothing except maybe breathing and eating and that type of thing. And yet they will vote together, stand together, and they will pursue their pursuits together. And you look at liberalism, think about all of the things that they have to hold together. They've got rich, they've got poor, they've got different sections of the country, they've got... Uh, gay, they've got transgender, they've got straight, they've got rural, they've got city, and somehow they kind of are able to pull that together. And then when you look at conservatives, I remember one time it, it had to, uh, see, I was at Chelsea, so it had to have been late 80s, maybe early 90s, that we finally got a, uh, a, a bill that limited abortions 
through uh, uh, the state legislature, at least one house of it. And uh, we were pretty excited about it until our movement fragmented because there was a significant group of pro-life people. They agreed with us that, the, that abortion is murder. Okay? They agreed with that. But the bill didn't go far enough for some, and they said, we can't support it because it doesn't go far enough. And as a result, we didn't have the votes, and it didn't make it through. And I was so frustrated with that. I said, why is it that liberals can stay together and take what they can get and move on, but conservatives, we fall apart and we fracture because for some people, the bill may have gone too far, and for others, it didn't go far enough. My position was, if there were 100 babies being killed, and we can save 50 of them, let's do it. Let's do it. We can always go for more later on, but let's take what we can get. Every baby is worth saving, you know? But there were some people that were in the movement that said, nope, if we can't save 100, we're not supporting this bill at all because to them it would have been a and here's a dirty word among conservatives whether you're in a church or whether you're in politics it's the word compromise we've been uh, raised that that is just a dirty word we're not going to compromise we're going to stand our ground and so that means if you don't agree totally with me or I don't get everything that I think ought to happen or everything that I want what do I do pull away see and sometimes when we could have joined hands and joined arms and said, let's work together when and where we can, we don't always do that because we want to take this righteous stand. And in the case, like with that abortion bill, I didn't disagree with those people. I was on their side. I wanted all of it stopped. But we weren't there yet, and we couldn't get there. But doesn't it seem like that the liberals, because they don't have scruples they don't really have principles they can just fudge on all of it because they don't believe in absolute truth and so sometimes our convictions can become sometimes our worst enemy right and one of their strengths is the fact that they don't believe anything anyway so they can link arms with anybody at any time and it makes you feel like how will we ever win how do we ever stand how do we ever make it through all of this and it feels like you're being ambushed. Being ambushed politically. Ambushed through entertainment. Have you ever thought it was weird that nearly everybody in the music industry, in all genres, they all vote the same way? They all live the same way? They all support the same things? How do they pull that off? Have you ever noticed how many in Hollywood, whether it's in television or whether it's in movies... What, 96% of them will vote Democrat? How do they pull that off? How is it happening? And we're getting hit everywhere we turn. Can't even watch the news without getting hit with a lot of stuff. And I'm uh, to the point where I'm, I'm ready for Pride Month to be over, aren't you? I'm getting a little sick of it, a little tired of it. And uh, I, I, I think about all of those things, and then I was reading, studying for this tonight, and you know what I found out? It's nothing new. It's been exposed all of these thousands of years ago exactly what is going to happen. So we want to look at this uh, tonight and uh, talk about ambush. This is the way Asaph felt, and we're in Psalm 83, verses 5 through 8. 
And here's what he said. For they, meaning the enemies of the people of the Lord, they have consulted together with one consent and they form a confederacy against you. That's important, by the way. Verse 6. The tents of Edom and the uh, Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibel and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. See this coalition? And they have helped the children of Lot. And then Asaph adds this one word. He goes, Selah. Okay? That means basically stop, think, meditate on all of that. Doesn't that seem like a weird thing to meditate on? Let's uh, think about all of the coalition and the power of the enemy. Yeah, you ought to think about it. Because you really don't win in fighting your enemy until you know your enemy and you know what their strategies really are. And the Word of God tells us about the strategy of the enemy. And I think that uh, for a lot of us, it seems like that the uh, opposition, the forces of hell, Satan and all of his demons, boy, they're just everywhere and they have all kinds of power and all kinds of strength. And that causes us sometimes to, you know, turtle up. We, we pull in. And yet this is a time when we ought to be standing up and standing strong because we have unlimited resources in Christ and they are very limited. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul said, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. Why are we not ignorant of his devices? Because he doesn't really have that many weapons in his arsenal. He's severely limited by the Lord. Coalitions, yes, he's very good at that. Being able to uh, launch movements from very, very, very small seeds, yes, he's very good at that type of thing. He's patient and he's powerful and all of that. But the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, for, and, and this is important, this next word, for all. Let that sink in, what John is saying. For all that is in the world, and then he names them, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And he tells us that the world is passing away. What that means is, no matter what it is you see out there, no matter what it may look like, no matter what the movement may be, no matter how perverted it may be, no matter how moral it may seem to be, no matter how it may look, good or bad, the Bible tells us here that the enemy only has three things that they can use. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so uh, when you think about whatever your problems may be, whatever your sins may be, whatever your hang-ups may be, whatever it is that the enemy is using to trip you up, let's have a counseling session. It's really fairly easy to diagnose. I know today everybody thinks they know what they've got and they've got all of these different kind of things going on. Now, let me just make a disclaimer here. If that's legitimate and it really is organic because of a chemical imbalance or whatever it may be, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the things 
that we could and should control, that we know about and that we know better than, and yet we find ourselves mixed up in all of this. What happened? Well, it probably was something your eyes saw and you just couldn't resist it. What, what is the real key that goes on behind uh, something like uh, pornography, for example? Lust of the eyes, right? When you think about uh, the lust of the flesh, sometimes it boils down to what your two-year-old does. I want it. Doesn't have to be any other reason. I want it. That's why we can't control our weight. You know, there have been times when I've made just this thing. I'm just not going to eat anything else. And then my flesh goes, yeah, you are. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. Why? Because I want it. You ever tried to fight that battle? It's very difficult. And that can be true no matter what. That's what goes on behind um, homosexuality, for example. It doesn't really matter what's good or bad or right or wrong. doesn't even matter even back in the days when um, AIDS was rampant on everything. We're not going to stop. We're just going to find a way to manage all of that. Why? Because I want it. Lust of the flesh. That's why it's hard to handle your money. Because there are too many things that you want. You ought to say no, but you don't. Lust of the flesh. And then you think about this, pride of life. My goodness, you can't even watch a toothpaste commercial without getting the idea that, you know what, I'm using the wrong toothpaste and that's why I don't have that kind of a car. That's why I don't look like that person on TV and that's why I didn't get the girl. It all comes down, I'm not using the right toothpaste. I mean, they use that to sell it, don't they? And everything is going to make you secure, and it's going to uh, make you somebody. It's going to give you status and all of that. And uh, so when you, next time you watch a commercial on TV in the middle of your favorite show, I want you to think about this verse in 1 John. And I want you to notice that advertising basically is dangling in front of you the lust of the eyes. You see it. The lust of the flesh. You've got to have it. And the pride of life, you're nothing without this. Then I want you to go and think theologically. Isn't that what the serpent said to Eve? You want it, and the Bible tells us she looked and she saw that it was desirable. Lust of the eyes, right? And then it said it was desirable to make one wise. What is that? Lust of the flesh. I want that. And then the serpent said... You won't die, but in the day you eat thereof, you will be like God. There's the pride of life. That's everything. And everything for you and for me, you just diagnosed your problem and what trips you up in every area of life. This is where sin comes from. This is where our problems come from. This is where our failures come from. It all comes down to that. And until we learn to win the battle over the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, we're just going to keep on being tripped up. Now, it's embarrassing to think how easily we are taken off of the straight and narrow, so to speak. And we fall, and we fumble, and we mess up, and we trip other people up. And yet the strategy is simply this. Dangle something before their eyes that they don't think they can live without. Put something in front of them that they want so bad they will do anything and risk anything to get it. How many people will risk their whole family and their whole status 
for a sexual encounter. Yeah, Think about all of those kind of things. Where they ought to stop and they ought to go, whoa, 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 this is going to cost me more than I want to pay. I mean, that's what we always say. Sin will take you further than you wanted to, ever wanted to go, cost you more than you wanted to pay, and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. That's a cute little cliche thing, but we don't ever stop and think about that. And the enemy knows what we like, what we want, what will appeal to us. The Bible says in the book of James that every man is enticed when he is drawn away of his own lust, and uh, every man is tempted, pardon me, when he is drawn away from his own lust and enticed. And in the Greek, it's a fishing term. Okay? So when you uh, throw out the bait when you're fishing, I mean, you're a fool if you don't have any bait on your hook and just throwing out a bare hook. What are the chances of you just snagging something that goes by? Very, very small. And if you are fishing for a certain type of fish and you don't put bait down that the fish like, well, you're probably not going to catch anything. And so you want to put something down that the fish will like and they will take it and they will bite on it. And that's the term. Every man is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Think about that bass or that trout or whatever it may be. And that's you. And so who's dropping the bait? Well, you've got an enemy that drops a bait. They know you very well. They've been watching you. They've been observing you. They know where your strengths are. They know where your weaknesses are. They know your likes. They know your dislikes. And so they appeal to you. And where they appeal to me may not be the same uh, as what appeals to you. Some of you are, you, you like liver. I mean, good night. How... How that, that is perverted, you know, in my book. And yet you like it. You'll eat it. I, I wouldn't go for it. I wouldn't go for it. And so I've never, ever, ever had to battle the temptation to eat liver. It just never happens. Why? Because the enemy knows what I like, what I would be drawn to, what I would take the bait on. And he knows that for you too. And he's probably been watching your family for a long time too. That's why generational sins and things like that. It, it, it seems like that there are things that just patterns that run in families. You know, Abraham lied to Sarah and uh, to uh, Pharaoh. You know, uh, she's my sister, right? And Isaac did uh, uh, virtually the same thing. And then uh, grandson Jacob, his name even just means deceiver. And uh, that's the way he lived his life. Just things like that. Why does that happen? I think it's because the enemy watches us. And they watch us throughout generations. And they drop bait that is going to be something that we are going to want. This, this is the idea that we have here. And so some of this, let's be honest, from a New Testament uh, standpoint, ambushed, yeah, yeah, it, it's all around us. Evil is all around us. We see it. But what's wrong with us that we can't figure out how to win the battle over three things? And we get caught again and again and again and again. And that's why the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians, that it's written as an admonition, a warning to us that we should not be like them. Why? Because don't you ever wonder when you read in the Old Testament those stories and you go, oh no, here they go again. What is the matter with them? Well, they're like us. 
And we fall for the same things too, don't we? And your besetting sin that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, it may be gossip. It may be something else that that's kind of uh, seems benign. It doesn't seem as bad as, you know, what all is in the world. And yet you keep falling for it. Well, my sin is just little. If it really is that little, you would have conquered it by now. The problem is it's not all that little. It's so easy. It's what you default to. And so we feel ambushed, we feel trapped, we feel ashamed, we feel guilt. And uh, we know that we're not everything that we ought to be. And we feel like we are trapped. Now, don't you imagine in Psalm 83, that's the way the people felt in Israel. We're trapped. We can't go north, we can't go south, we can't go east, we can't go west. And uh, yet here we are, the people of God. Isn't this great? And yet we're trapped. We're under siege. And all these people have allied against us. We're the only ones that are standing against all of them. You know, you and me against the world. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? And so uh, we look at these things and we kind of have a, a kinship with Asaph and with the uh, people of God. So let's uh, talk about some of these kind of things. Number one... Uh, the enemies of God's people are allied and unified. And we've spent enough time talking about that. We, we, we get that. And that's what it says. They have consulted together with one consent. You know, they uh, always say that if you get uh, three Baptists in the room, you'll have four opinions. You know, kind of hard to agree sometimes. But have you ever noticed the enemy always seems to get this uh, they consult together and they come out with this one consent, one pattern, one strategy, one thing they're going to do. It's amazing. Well, this is nothing new. This has been going on now for thousands of years. And when we see the word consulted, it reminds us that the enemy is planning and they, are, uh, they have, uh, what was it uh, President Bush used to say? Strategery. Yeah, they use good strategery. In all of this. And, and we don't. Sometimes we're kind of haphazard and we're caught off guard and flying by the seat of our pants. We might say, well, the enemy's ready. They're organized. They've consulted together. And notice here, um, it says that uh, when they have this consent, that they, they have come to agreement in spite of their differences. Because we've already said they've got a lot of differences, but they're able to sort of come together. Boy, I wish God's people could do that around the gospel of Jesus Christ, around the truth, and we uh, divide so easy. I've got an illustration of this. Jesus is on trial, and he was taken before Pilate. Pilate, of course, the Roman, the Gentile. And he is the procurator there in Judea. And uh, when he is dealing with the Jews and the Jewish leaders over Jesus, he's thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with him? I, when he says, I find no fault in him, Pilate wasn't saying, oh, he's the sinless son of God. That, that's not even on his mind. What he is thinking is, according to Roman law, I don't have any real reason to hold him. Okay? So what am I going to do? And his wife comes to him and says, I had a dream about this man. Have nothing to do with him. Don't you know Pilate was just kind of shook up over all of this? Because if he handles it wrong, 
there may be a riot because some people thought that Jesus was the king of the Jews and others were adamantly opposed to all of that. And so either way he goes, this thing could blow up. And it just happened to be at the Passover when every Jew in the empire virtually has come to Jerusalem. So it's not like a, the normal population is there. It's, it's the numbers have swelled. And I mean, it is a powder keg. And the Jews hate the Romans anyway. So uh, what, what if this just goes south and everything falls apart? Well, then Caesar's going to send uh, a contingent of troops in and Pilate may lose his job because his job is to keep the peace. And so he thinks, ah, it's Passover. Not only are all these strangers in town, but Herod is in town. Herod is the one that when his father, Herod the Great, died, the kingdom was divided up by Rome, of course. And uh, so this particular Herod, the son of Herod the Great, he is the ruler over Galilee. Jesus is from Galilee. Bing! You can see the light bulb coming on above Pilate's head. Send this guy to Herod and let Herod deal with all of it. And then if there's a riot or anything like that, it's on his head and not mine. So he goes to Herod, and what did Herod want? Do a trick. Do a trick. And of course, Jesus didn't dance to his tune. And so uh, Herod sends him back to Pilate. Okay? Something happened that night. And it's an illustration of what we have been talking about in Luke 23, 12. You ever notice this? And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Isn't it amazing how the enemies of the Lord can get together? Somebody said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's the way they tend to operate. We don't like our policies. We don't like our positions. We're rivals here. But we both have problems with Jesus. Let's get together and become friends and see what we're going to do with him. And so the unity of the enemy should not, should not surprise us. And yet in John chapter 17, when Jesus is in the garden, do you know what he prayed for? Unity among the people of God. And it's amazing. That always eludes us. Because there are just some things we can't compromise on. Because his word is truth. So it's hard for us to get together with a lot of other denominations. And a lot of other movements and things like that. And some of them we could. And some of them we just can't. Sorry. So that's amazing, isn't it? But they always can. So don't be surprised when all that happens. Okay, number two. The enemies of God's people have a singular motivation. What is their motivation? Well, Asaph tells us. They form a confederacy against you. Now, confederacy, we always think of the Civil War. Uh, that was just a handy term to give to those 11 states who broke away from the Union. It means a league it means an alliance together. So Asaph is saying, they, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the people of God, they form an alliance. And what is the alliance against? We talked about this last week. It's actually not against Israel. It's against God. It's against the Lord. And we forget this. When we see people marching in the streets for ungodliness, 
when we see corruption in government and wonder, what are these people doing? What are they trying to get away with? And we could go on and on. Remember this, it's not really about you. It's not really about us. It's a confederacy against the Lord. And Asaph was smart enough to figure that out. This isn't just about Israel. This goes higher. This goes to the heights of where God sets upon his throne and he rules and reigns. It's these, this league of nations saying, we will not have this God to be king over us. Okay? And so they formed a league together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Do you hate Yahweh? Yeah. Do you hate Yahweh? Yeah. Do you hate Yahweh? Yeah. Do you hate his people? Yes, we do. Then let's join together and let's go do something about it. And so the enemies of God's people, they have a singular motivation, and it's about God. They're against him. Thirdly, the enemies of God's people are strategic and committed. Strategic and committed. You know, it's hard to get uh, people to come to church on Wednesday night. But if we were a member of a communist group, everybody would be present. If we were trying to change society and bring some perversity on it, we'd have a full house. Why? Because those people are willing to die. They're willing to fight. They're willing to riot. They're willing to be arrested. They're willing to... Uh, give up relationships and everything for what they believe in. But Christians, we don't even want to go to church in the rain, and we wonder why we're losing in some of this stuff. Am I right about that or not? It's amazing how quick somebody who takes these big, bold stands can flake off. And you call on them, and they say, well, yeah, but my kid's got a soccer game. I, sorry, you know, you're on your own. And uh, it's like that person, do you have friends that are the ones who say, oh, just call me. I'm always available. And then when you call them, ah, uh, well, except for, boy, you know, that particular day at 2 o'clock, that's the one day I, I, I just can't make it. You got any friends like that? And it seems to me like for a lot of uh, Christians, that's kind of the way it is. Kind of the way it is. I'm sold out. I want Jesus to be victorious. I want to see change in our land. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Oh, boy, doggone it. Just not available during that time. Well, it's amazing how available the enemy always is for what they do. And the price that they will pay for what they believe in, it puts us to shame. And they mock us. For all of that because we don't seem to be all that committed to what we sing about and what we say we believe, right? Well, that's kind of what's happening here. All of these people are getting together. What are they, like 10 nations here? And uh, there, let's go to the next slide. There's a map up there. And you can look and you can see all of these names on that particular map. And they all are surrounding Israel. How would you like to see that? Let's call the general staff together and let's see what we're going to do. And you look at all of that and you go, I don't know what we're going to do. No wonder Jehoshaphat was in uh, uh, such a desperate strait when he looked at all of that. that. That is disaster. Disaster. Okay, Edom, 
Well, they're descendants of Esau. You remember him, Jacob's brother. And the Ishmaelites are descendants of Ishmael. That's Abraham's son that he had through Hagar, right? Remember? These people, sounds like they're kind of related, doesn't it? Well, this is sort of a family squabble with a few additions. We uh, see Moab. Well, they're descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew, remember? The uh, Hagrites are living there. There's people that live east of the Jordan River. Don't know a whole lot about them. Gibal is a Phoenician city. You've heard of the Phoenicians in your history classes, I imagine. Big empire. Uh, Ammon, when uh, they're also descendants of Lot. Amalek, or descendants of Esau. There we go again. Jacob's brother, Israel's brother. Philistia, well, you've heard of the Philistines, Goliath and all of those kind of people. Uh, Philistia is involved in all of this. Tyre is there. Jesus had words to say about Tyre. And then Assyria, Israel's dreaded enemy to the north, is here. And this league of nations formed a powerful alliance to oppose Israel. I mean, I'm, I look at that and I go, yikes. I mean, no wonder they were crying out to God. And yet a sovereign God allowed them to get in this position and the enemy to surround them and be bold enough to show themselves because God wanted to do something great. I want to ask you, as the people of God, whenever you see evil coming in, will you please look at that as an opportunity for God to show himself strong? For God to put you in a position that cannot be explained by your brilliance and your talent and your strategy and all of those kind of things. I mean, we take credit for so many things we don't have any right to take credit for. And sometimes God just says, here, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to put you in a place where you have no answers, no resources, no power, nothing at all. And I'm going to show you how strong I am. So for once, you will glorify me. Maybe that's what's happening in our own country now so that Christians will get to the point where we actually get on our faces before God, fast and pray, and God may do something in our land that we can't take credit for. Because up till now, you know, we always tend to find a way to take the credit. Boy, wasn't my strategy brilliant? Wasn't that a great crusade? Wasn't that a great campaign? Wasn't that a great sermon? Wasn't that a great strategy that we had? You know, we take credit for all of it. God may be on the verge of doing something powerful in this that we never saw coming and will shock the secular world around us. Wouldn't that be great? And so we've got to think like that because that's what God did in these days. Number four, the enemies of God's people start small and are patient. Okay? Now, about now, you're looking at your verses going, okay, you've lost it. Where did you get that? Well, here's where it is. It says, the last verse, they have helped the children of Lot. Okay, we probably ought to talk about the children of Lot. Who in the world are they? Well, you've heard of the, what would we call it, the Lotian Empire? No, never heard of anything like that. They don't seem to be all that significant, do they? Well... The descendants of Lot. It, it must be so significant that Asaph says, pause here and think about this. So we'll pause and we'll think about it. The descendants of Lot. Okay. 
Well, who are the descendants of Lot? Well, I'll call your attention back to Genesis chapter 19. Lot and his family are running from Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The hellfire and brimstone are falling on that city. The angels have warned Lot. He takes off with his family. His wife looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. And he escapes, and he escapes to the mountains. Now, his daughters talk about perverse. They're the ones who say, you know, we're up here by ourselves and there's only the old man here and nobody's going to marry us and we're not going to bury any children. And you remember that's when they came up with that plan to get Lot drunk. A good reason not to drink, by the way. And then they committed incest with him. And Lot got his own daughters pregnant. Sheesh. What does the Bible say about that? Genesis 19, 36. Thus both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Didn't we just read about the Moabites coming against Israel? These are the descendants of Lot. So when we read that last verse that the, the descendants of Lot were the ones who were behind all of this, who started all of it, we're talking about Moabites. Well, we're familiar with that. Ruth was a Moabite. That means David was part Moabite, doesn't it? That's who is doing this, the descendants of Lot. Oh, but there's more. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Sounds like a cleaner in a kitchen, doesn't it? Oh, oh, but it tells us more. So we've got Moab, who's the father of the Moabites. Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So this is where it all started. This is where it all started. Moab and Ammon. Go back to the map. It's on the next slide. And think about all of that. What chance did Moab and Ammon have against Israel? Nothing really. But when you start adding in all of these other nations, you've got the king of Judah on his face before God in a panic. You know what I gleaned from that? The devil wanted to attack Judah and attack the people of Israel and uh, Jehoshaphat, the people of God, and wipe them out. The devil is very anti-Semitic. And anybody who is anti-Semitic, you know they didn't get that from God. They got that from the devil. And there has been holocaust after holocaust after holocaust that the Jews have actually been through. And even more than that, that have been planned for them. Because if you wipe out the Jew, then you wipe out all the promises and the covenants of God. And from an Old Testament standpoint, if we can wipe out the Jew, there's no way that the Messiah can come. So you can see the devil's strategy in all of this. And you look at this thing and you think, what happened? The descendants of Lot, they're the ones that got this all started. Now, you're not going to do much with the descendants of Lot. But give it time. 
and let it grow and start adding different people and nations to it. And now all of a sudden, you've got a full-fledged, sure enough movement coming that is going to petrify everybody in Judah. You know what I learned from that? Boy, the devil is content to start small and to be patient. When you look at some of the things our society is facing right now, okay, did you ever think there would be a debate over what is a woman with a candidate for the Supreme Court? Seems preposterous. And in fact, if you roll the clock back, oh, I don't know, 10 years, maybe not even that far, uh, that would be laughable. Even the, even the liberals would laugh at you and all of that. Where did all this start? Way, way back there, 50, 60, 70 years ago, there were little things that started, and we all just laughed them off. That'll never happen in America. That'll never take root here. Well, it did. It did. Well, we won the Cold War, right? Well, kind of, except we forgot about the communists and the socialists in our own backyard that took over our academic institutions, and now they're educating our college students especially. And now it's something that we don't know how to stop. And it's like the snowball that starts rolling downhill, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, if you remember Rocky and Bullwinkle, right? And that's what happens with evil. I want you to say la. I want you to think about that. Because it seems like the people of God, we just go, if we can't get a lot of people in a big movement and everything going pow on all of that, then eh, we'll give it up. It's a failure. I'm like that. You're like that. But the devil sure not. He'll plant a seed and wait 50 years for it to grow. He'll start off with something small, whispering demonic ideas into the ear of a Karl Marx or somebody like that, and then just back off and let it grow, 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 let it grow until it becomes a tsunami. You see what I'm saying? And so many times we're ready to give up, we're ready to quit. Nothing really happened. There was no lightning. There was no fire. There's nothing like that. So uh, what is the point? And so this is, looking on the map, this is where it started, and the coalition helped it spread along. So let me just uh, summarize this. Don't be surprised at the unity of the enemy. Okay? This has been going on for a long time. And realize that they are actually against the Lord that you serve. Don't take it personal. They hate God, period. They hate God. And anybody that looks like the Lord, anybody that looks like Jesus, anybody that is Christ-like, anybody that is Christian, we might say, well, they're going to come after you because you look like Him. But understand, they're really against Him. And then also, think about this. The enemy doesn't quit. They tend to be tougher than us. We, we give up. We give up. And yet they keep on, they keep on. The Energizer Bunny, you know, they just keep on going and keep on going and keep on going and keep on going and they persevere in all of these things. 
And then uh, understand this, that we want to start movements. You know, I think back when, uh, like, promise keepers came, we thought, oh, we're filling up football stadiums. Woo, take that, devil. Now look at what their agenda is doing as opposed to ours. It fizzled. Why? Because we like the movements. And the movements tend to be nothing but crowds. And let me tell you something about crowds. They're very anonymous and they're very fickle. Okay? The Lord is not about assembling a crowd. He's about assembling an army and a kingdom. And we have our assignment. We have our ranks. We have authority. We have our weapons. We have all of those things. But we would rather start a movement. And see, the devil is smarter than we are on that. Because he and all of his henchmen sit back and say, yeah, nobody thinks that this matters now. Just wait 30 years. Just wait 50 years. And we don't have that seed planting mentality. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, one generation plants the tree, the next generation enjoys the shade. We're not planting very many trees because I planted it. It's been two weeks and nothing's happening. Right? We plant a tree and it gets to be a foot tall and we go, where are the apples? And then we pull it up. We've got to quit thinking like that. And we've got to think long term. Long term. Long term. Somebody said the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Why? Because if there's going to be a tree 20 years from now, we've got to do something today. And this is, why, this is why what we're doing in VBS is so important, even though a lot of people don't think so. Fun and games and snacks and all of that. Yeah, today they learned about the true and the living God. That was the subject of their lesson. You think they're getting that at home? You think they're getting that at school? You think they're getting that other places? No. What were we doing today when we taught them about the true and the living God? On Monday, they learned about how God operates by grace. What an important principle. And then they learned that people are sinners on Tuesday. And then today, they learned about the true and the living God, His holiness, His power, how He's a creator. And some of the older ones, they had the story about how the Ark of the Covenant was put in the temple of Dagon. Remember that story? And Dagon kept falling down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because our God is supreme and powerful. What are we doing? We're planting seeds for the next generation. We're planting trees. And so pray for them because tomorrow they're going to learn about Christ and how this loving, powerful, sovereign, holy God sent His only Son into the world to die on the cross as the only solution for sin and to make us righteous. That's what they're actually going to be learning in the midst of everything. I hope they have fun and I hope they enjoy the snacks and I hope they laugh a lot and that type of thing. I hope it's great. But above all, I want the seed of Christ to be planted in their hearts. We may not see it grow for 20 years, but if we don't plant the seed, we'll have no harvest in 20 years. I may not be around to reap the harvest, but somebody will be. I want to harvest. I want to harvest. And then the last day on Friday, you pray for them because that's the day that they learn that it all comes together by grace through faith. And we're going to talk about faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at all of this stuff that is going on in the world and who we are, we can see that this was pictured for us in Psalm 83. It's nothing new. The Lord's not caught off guard. He's not powerless. He knows exactly what he's doing. What needs to change is for us as the people of God to view our enemy differently, their strategies differently, and then take the word of God and respond properly to all of it. Because it's not just about whiz, bang, pow. Man, I had an experience now. That's what's killing us. Because people that are looking for that don't plant trees. Why? Because it's not exciting enough. And I didn't get anything out of it. I mean, I planted that apple tree two years ago, and I haven't gotten a thing out of it. It must be nothing. I'm looking for something. And see, that's what's killing us. That's why we don't have any orchards today. See? We've got to think differently and think better than we have before. And the Bible has the answer to all of that. And it points us to our great and powerful God. Is that worth praying about? Is that worth investing your life and your time and your money in? Is that worth the hardships that you may go through? Is that worth putting on armor? Is that worth fighting a battle? Is that worth a few bruises and scars, spiritually speaking? And I would say a resounding yes. Yes. Let's do it. For the glory of God, for the cause of Christ, and for the sake of the next generation that is probably going to face worse things than we're facing now. And we have the privilege of getting them ready for it. So I'd like for us to go to the Lord in prayer. Okay? And I want you to pray, yes, for the people that are on your prayer list. But I really want you to pray about eternal things tonight. There are people in your family who need to be saved and you need to get serious about it. There are people that you know and work with that need to get saved. And we need to get serious about it. Just south of here, there was a three-year-old that was killed and put into a trash, uh, the dumpster things that we have. You think anybody saw that coming? I doubt it. I doubt it. But there's a life that's gone and somebody else is probably going to spend the rest of their life in prison. And we think those kind of things don't happen here. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Something may happen in your neighborhood or my neighborhood even tonight. We've had a little dust up in our HOA between some people and some you know, pretty stout emails sent back and forth. Oh, well, it'll never go any further than that. We hope. There have been things that have happened over silly, little, prideful issues. Because when you mess with people and you stir up and mess up lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, how dare you treat me like that? You don't know, do you? We live in an evil world. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus said in the world you'll have tribulation. Oh no, why does God allow all of this? Well, finish the verse. 
but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Can anybody say amen to that? And that's where we stand, okay? Let's, uh, let's pray. And uh, let's, let's pray specifically for these kids and what they are going to learn, as well as other people. You've got them on your heart. You can see your prayer list there. And let's minister and let's get serious. And let's pray and ask God to move. If you can get on your knees, would you? If you can't, don't. I don't want to have to help you up. And we don't want to have to call the fire department to get you up or anything. But if you can, if you can. There's no guilt, there's no pressure. But if you can, just do it. Okay? Oh, Lord God, the Holy One, the Sovereign One, the Powerful One, the One who has predicted so many things in Your Word that we have the privilege of watching them come true before our very eyes, forgive us when all we can see is the enemy and we don't see God. Forgive us when we see the enemy's strategy so clearly, but we don't see Yours, and yet You've laid it out for us in Your Word. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we've taken the battle lightly, when we've taken our armor off. Forgive us for those times when we've strayed away from the assignment and while the battle is raging over here, we're over playing in the creek. Forgive us for the times when we have thought that our battles are important and nobody else's are. We're in this all together. Forgive us, Father, when we have looked and we have seen the work of the enemy and the work of the people who don't love our God and they don't love our book. They don't love our morals. They don't love our ethics. And somehow we kind of give in to them and sometimes we are uh, compromising not with like-minded people for the cause of Christ, but we're compromising with the enemies of the Lord and we're looking more like them than we are the army, army of God. Sometimes it even seems like Christian people are putting on the enemy uniform. We don't know who to shoot at sometimes. Forgive us, Father, when we're not passionate about the right things, we don't love the right things, and we don't live the way that we really ought to live, and we don't discern properly. Forgive us, Lord. We're, we're weak, we're childish, we're selfish. Dear God, forgive us. And for the children in VBS, thank you for each one of them. Thank you, Lord, that when they come, they sing, they laugh. They kind of have to be called down because they're having a good time. We don't want them to be bored. Thank you for the songs that they sing and the things that they eat and the games that they play. Thank you for all of that. Thank you that they come in here and they're laughing and they're happy. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that there are kids from Skip and Linda's Child Development Center who don't have to come, but they want to come. And they come back every day because they like it. Thank you for those kind of things. But Lord, in addition to all of that, our prayer is, would you plant the seeds of the gospel in their little hearts? And would you do more than plant it, would you water it? And we pray, Lord, that you might bring forth from this week a harvest. 
And would you give us as a church and as individual Christians a harvest mentality to plant those trees that may never benefit us, but they sure will be a blessing to the next generation. Help us, Father, to think in terms of seeds that can be planted. Think, uh, help us to think about seeds that can be watered. And, oh, Lord, I pray for every person in this room tonight. My prayer would be before the year is over, they would be able to lead somebody to faith in Christ. And that the thing that would fire our church up and motivate us is to see you glorified through the salvation of souls. So, Lord, yes, we want sick people to be healed and to get well. And, yes, we want people to get jobs who need jobs. Yes, we want marriages repaired. And, yes, we want people to be able to see their families unified. We don't discount any of those things. But far above and beyond that, we pray that we would look above our temporary, momentary afflictions, Paul said, and we would see eternity. And we would live for eternity in your glory. And I pray that as the old hymn says, we wouldn't stand before you empty-handed. Do a work in us. We love you and thank you for being patient with us, Lord. You remember our frame that we are dust. But, oh, Lord, work powerfully through this dust that's here. That we would bring glory to your name as we should. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.